Let me encourage you at this time to take your Bible and turn with me to the Old Testament, the second book of the Torah, the book of Exodus in the third chapter. Exodus chapter 3. And I would like to read verses 1 through 8a, and then we'll move over to verses 13 and 14. Hear the word of the true and living God. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jephro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take the sandals, take your sandals from off your feet. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. And then moving on forward in the chapter to verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's seek the blessing of God now on the ministry of his holy and infallible word. Let us pray. O Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence. We confess that we feel like your servant of old, who, when commissioned with the message of this mighty deliverance, confessed that at best all he could do was but to mother and stutter in the effort to obey your word. O oh Lord, be pleased then, we ask, to take our feeble efforts and to make them mighty in the power of the Holy Spirit, to give seed to the sower and bread to those who are hungry, to the end that your people will find nourishment in your word, that Christ will be set before sinners and that he might be exalted in our midst. Bless your dear people, we ask everywhere, who are listening 
by means of this technology this evening. Enable them, we pray, to hear to the good of their souls and to the glory of our God. And we ask, O oh Father, that you would be pleased to make the Savior all the more precious to our souls this evening. For we ask all of these things in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let me encourage you at this time to take your Bible and turn with me in it to the Gospel of John. Because this sermon this evening is really an introduction to a series of sermons regarding the extraordinary utterances of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we find in the gospel according to John. And it is my intention to deal with these seven I am statements of our Lord one by one as they're found in John's gospel as opportunity is given to me to do so. Now, to come clean up front, my purpose for doing this is twofold. And the first purpose is this. It is both good and necessary for Christians as well as unbelievers to hear on a regular basis about the great salvation that God has brought to us and given to us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christian believers... We never graduate beyond the great truths that cluster around the person of work and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed to us in the gospel. And so I hope this opportunity is given to me that we will become freshly acquainted with the grace and the glory of the salvation that God has brought to us and provided for us in his son. But there is additionally a second purpose why I want to bring us face to face with these extraordinary utterances of our Lord that he makes concerning himself in the Gospel of John. And that second purpose is this. There is, I think, and it's possible perhaps that I'm only speaking for myself, but I really doubt that to be the case. There is, I think, always the possibility that we end up separating Christ or dividing Christ from the blessings and the benefits that he bestows upon us. One of the great errors of a certain communion in our own day, and it's an egregious error, is that it portrays the Lord Jesus Christ as dispensing the blessings of the gospel from a treasury of merit, sometimes called that communion's treasure of satisfaction. Merit that Christ, and lo and behold, some of his saints, it is said, have a crude and accumulated, and that people in measure deserve by their faithfulness and love to God. And there is then this picture of this vast treasury, and Jesus Christ is dispensing the blessings out of this treasury to the faithful. That, dear people, is a terrible error. Jesus Christ never dispenses blessings from a treasury of merit. He himself is the treasury of merit. He is the blessing of the gospel. In the gospel, God gives us his son. 
There is no blessing under heaven, no blessing whatsoever that does not come in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one in whom all the blessings come to the people of God. In the gospel, God gives us himself. He doesn't parcel out blessings as it were. And we need to guard against conceiving of God and his blessings in categories like that. Because when we do, we end up separating Christ from the benefits of the gospel. When in reality, he himself is the benefit of the gospel. And so as opportunity is given me, I want for us to survey this emphasis that we find in the other Gospels, but particularly in the Gospel of John. And these seven great I am utterances of the Lord Jesus Christ, which are found there. And we're going to see how our Lord Jesus was self-consciously aware that he was the great blessing of the gospel. And that there was nothing that God would give his people outside of or apart from his son, the Lord Jesus. So for these two purposes, I want us to consider together and be confronted together by these extraordinary egotistical utterances or sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the second place tonight, let me ask you, do you ever pause in your Bible reading and wonder at Jesus' extraordinary self-conscious egotism that he expresses or whether these utterances of the Lord Jesus have become so mundane or overly familiar to you that you simply read them without actually thinking what you're reading about and in asking that question of you I am reminded of that often repeated statement of an ancient preacher by the name of John Chrysostom. He used to say in reading God's word, let us not pass by the words in there heedlessly. I mean, sacred scripture, he says, says nothing idly or by chance. Instead, even if it happens to be a syllable or a single jot, it has some treasure concealed in it. You see, one of the most remarkable features of the Gospels is Jesus' constant references repeatedly to himself over and over again. The Lord Jesus self-consciously draws attention to himself using some of the most extravagant language imaginable. Nine times, for example, in John's gospel, he simply says, I am, I am. And he does that most dramatically, I suppose, at the close of John chapter 8, when he says to his Jewish antagonist there, before Abraham was, I am. Intriguingly, none of these nine I am's, grammatically speaking, have a predicate. Now, I trust you know what a predicate is. A predicate is something that modifies or completes a statement or a sentence. David loves Angela. David is the subject. Angela 
is the predicate. But these nine utterances are simply I am with no predicate, no modification, no completion, just nine I am's which stand alone. Now, in the broader context of John's gospel, it's all too clear what Jesus is claiming. John is setting these dramatic, extraordinary utterances, egotistical sayings of Lord of the Lord in the context of what he has told us in the opening verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was God, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John tells us. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And right at the very outset of his gospel, John is putting his readers on notice regarding the essential deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Logos, the eternal word of God, God's everlasting son who has become flesh. Now, not simply someone who was robed in flesh, or who was clothed in flesh, but who has become flesh. John emphasizes that the word became flesh. The unfathomable has occurred. What God declared so breathtakingly to Moses out of the burning bush as his action on behalf of his people, I have come down to deliver them. John now declares an action that God has repeated, but repeated in a manner beyond all imagination whatsoever. God is declaring through the pen of his apostle, I have come down in flesh to deliver them. I have become one with them to deliver them. I am has come down in flesh. And it is against that backdrop that John then is able to recount for us these utterances in his gospel, which in turn should give each one of us pause from the heart to say with Moses, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Riding in the power of the Spirit, John is, as it were, connecting all the dots for us in his gospel that we may turn aside and behold this great sight of the Word made flesh. Perhaps you're already con contemplating in your own mind this passage from Exodus. There God brings Moses face to face, as it were, with himself in the theophany of this burning bush which is not consumed. Moses' initial response, you'll notice, to this sight was curiosity and intrigue. And then he is humbled. And there God commands Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am 
has sent you to them. Now try to place yourself in Moses' sandals on that occasion. A burning bush speaks to you and identifies itself as I am. I am what? I am. Give me a predicate for that. Nothing else is offered besides that. Only I am. I am is the name by which he made himself known to Moses. Jesus is making these utterances in the Gospel of John in the self-conscious awareness of the extraordinary exclusivity of his claims, as well as the effect that he knew it was going to produce upon his hearers. And make no mistake, when Jesus identified himself as I am at the close of John chapter 8, it wasn't lost on his Jewish adversaries, I assure you. For we read there in verse 59, for they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. Talk about a supernatural exit. But in addition to these nine unpredicated I am's, there are a number of I am utterances that do have a, a predicate connected with them. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. John, uh, or I am the door, the gate of the sheep, John 10. I am the good shepherd, John 10 again. I am the resurrection and the life, John chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. And then in John 15, I am the true vine. Now, to be sure, in all of these utterances, it is not simply careless arrogance at play on the part of our Lord. Oh, no. He is self-consciously aware of who he is. He is claiming to be God in every sense of the word. Why in the world should any man's life, especially his death, mean anything to anyone anywhere especially people here and now living in the 21st century? Why should the life and death of any man 2,000 years ago or so mean anything? Why should it mean anything more than a mere hiccup in the story of the history of the world? That Jesus of Nazareth died an ignoble death the death of one regarded as some religious and political criminal. Well, he died a penal substitutionary death, an atoning death. And if he died only as a mere man, at best, he would have been a heroic figure, somewhere, someone to admire and to which to aspire. But John has already informed us in his gospel at the close of chapter 3, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe in the Son does not, shall not see life, but the wrath of God 
abides on him. Jesus Christ stands at the very center of all humanity. And it's your relationship to Jesus Christ which determines whether you have eternal life. Which is not life simply that continues perpetually on and on and on. But rather life is in fellowship with God. That's how Jesus identifies eternal life in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. In the, his high priestly prayer. Eternal life there he said is to know God. And he tells us that life is in fellowship with God. But as I indicated, in addition to these nine unpredicated I am's, these seven other I am's are actually emphatic. I am's with a predicate, with a modifier. For instance, again, John 6, 35, it's not simply I am the bread of life or John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. The emphasis in the original is very certain. It's ego e me. I myself am the bread of life. I myself am the light of the world. The language is very definite there. Jesus is emphatically underscoring the unrivaled egotism of his I am sayings. Now, dear people, I do think it's possible for us to have heard these sayings so often or have have read them so often or heard them so often that we can become desensitized to just how radical and breathtaking these sayings really are. And if we do not guard ourselves, the gospel can become all too commonplace to us. And if my own experience to my own shame is anything to which any of you can relate, I cannot get over how at times I can be unmoved by the wonder of the gospel. I know in my heart of hearts that the gospel is wonderful. And I know and understand why it is wonderful. But I am conscious of the reality that I have too much remaining sin clinging to my flesh to keep me from being constantly overwhelmed as I ought. By the wonder of the gospel. I know in reading the Apostle Paul at times, and perhaps you don't see this so much in English. Though if you read him carefully, you notice it. But he loses himself at times in bad grammar. And instead of saying, oh, look at that in the Greek. Paul's syntax, oh, it's askew there. We should be saying, no, he is so called up with the glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ, that his heart is racing the head of his mind, and that is his words cannot keep pace with his heart. Paul's instances remind me of something that the great Augustine once remarked to his catechumens. He said, my preaching, my speech, it almost always displeases me. He says, and then when I find that my power of expression is not equal to my inner apprehension, I am grieved at the inability of my tongue to answer to my heart. You see this in Paul, for example, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, 
where he says something to that effect. But indeed, or yea, doubtless, he says, according to the old translation, I also count, that is, I go on counting all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. We who have examined this text in the Greek know that Paul's syntax there came to be lost in the midst as he strove to express what the Lord Jesus Christ came to mean to him in his own Christian experience. It's as though the Apostle Paul is probing the mind of the Spirit for words. And the Spirit is saying, Paul, you're reaching for the unreachable. There are no words adequate to express the joy of the inner apprehension of your soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grammar, syntax, sentence structure, these things were servants to the apostle in giving expression by the inspiration of the Spirit to the truth of God. But sometimes they became subsidiary in importance as to that which could not be expressed in any human language in a way adequate to it. If you're anything like myself, I can become so desensitized by familiarity with these I am sayings of Jesus. And the reason why I'm introducing this series with this passage from Exodus 3 is because in the first place, it prefigures so dramatically the redemptive work of God in Christ, beginning with God's revelation to Moses of his determination to come down and deliver his people. And it is but a preview of the Son of God coming down in flesh to give his flesh for the life of the world. And number two is pointed out by John Brown in his excellent commentary on the discourses and sayings of our Lord. There he reminds us that Jesus' self-conscious I am utterances in the Gospel of John are embedded and encapsulated in the very language of God's burning bush pronouncement to Moses. When God revealed himself to Moses from the midst of that burning bush, what was he doing at that specific point in redemptive history? I am had come down to inform Moses that he was going to redeem his people out of Egypt. And he was going to come as the God of redemption who in grace and power would take his people out of Egypt for he was united to them in covenant fidelity. Having committed himself to be their God and whenever God uses that language, I will be their God. It is technical language of God's covenant commitment to his people. You see, nothing else explains the momentous meaning of Jesus' conception, incarnation, life and death and resurrection than who he is, who lived and died, and who rose again from the dead. These I am sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of John are his self conscious declarations to be everything that. Every human being presently and eternally needs. 
our Lord Jesus is only able to do what he does because he is who he is. He declares in John 6, 35, I am the bread from heaven who satisfies your hunger and your thirst for life. Are you hungry and thirsty tonight? Then Jesus proclaims himself to be the spiritual diet that your soul most desperately needs. I am the bread come down from heaven, given by my Father for the life of the world. He declares in John 8, verse 12. I am the light of, world, of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I have come, he is saying, to guide you, guide you safely through this life into the eternal life in God's nearer presence. If you follow me, he says, you will never walk in darkness. He says in John 10, verses 7 and 9, I am the door through whom, by whom, you enter into forgiveness and fellowship and in the, by the security of God's favor and love. I am the door, that is to say, the only door. What a startling pronouncement. That was on the part of the Lord Jesus. If you enter by me, you will be saved. And then our Lord says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Indeed, the good shepherd who was willing to give his all to deliver, to rescue his sheep from a fate worse than death itself. John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Ever since the time I recited those words at the graveside of my father, I have never ceased to find those words as a bedrock of comfort to my soul. And then in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's the great offense today, is it not? Such exclusive egotism of our Lord's language flies full in the face of our postmodern culture and the demands of religious pluralism. Over and over again, our Lord is underscoring with unembarrassed egotism the uniqueness of his person as well as the exclusivity of his claims. And then in John 15, 1, and we have our Lord's seventh predicated I am. I am the true vine. That is to say, I alone am the one who has produced loving obedience to the Father. And I have done so for all my people as their representative head of all who have put their trust in me. I am in union with these people. What I'm trying to say this evening, dear people, is simply this. That no matter where you turn in the pages of the Gospels, it is impossible to escape our Lord's self-conscious pronouncements regarding his true identity. And it's because he knows who he is that he is able to say, come to me. 
all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Can you point me to any words in the Bible that are even that are more earth-shattering than those words? Come to me. Who are you? I am. I am. This is your greatest need tonight in mine. Whatever load it is that has you weighed down, I am is what you need. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. On and on and on. And the Lord Jesus is telling us in these utterances that he has not come down as one option among men or even the best of two or three. He says, I am come down as the gospel. I am, he is saying to us, the good news. You see, you see, salvation, the way, the truth, the life, all of these great re realities, they are not individual commodities or a spiritual state to which we all should aspire as they are a person. Jesus is himself. The gospel. Jesus is in himself. And in himself exclusively. All that he has predicated himself to be. Salvation is union with a person. There is this wonderful picture. And I close with this. There, there's this wonderful scene portrayed for us. In the second chapter of Luke's gospel. And we're introduced there to the figure of Simeon. And we're told of him, among other things, that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And we're told that he came by the Spirit into the temple at the precise moment when the parents of the Christ child presented him to do for him according to the custom of the law. And Simeon is privileged to hold the Christ child in his arms. And what is his response as he holds close to his bosom that little warm body of flesh? He says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Why? Because I am had come down to deliver his people. Let's pray.